Amen. I forget how to turn this microphone on. I feel like I've been gone so long. It's only gone for two weeks. But it's good to be back. My wife and I had the joy of visiting our grandkids, which we hadn't seen in like almost two years. And so we've been in North Carolina for uh, almost two weeks, but it's, it's good to be home and good to be back. A uh, big thank you to Dave for filling in on Mother's Day. I know that's probably a tough, tough morning to preach, but uh, I only had to put him in a half Nelson for about five minutes to get him to agree to do that, and so that was cool. Um, so thanks, Dave. A uh, big thank you for your welcome to my friend Oscar last Sunday. Uh, he called me this week, and we talked, and he was just really excited to be here. My favorite part of the service last Sunday was when Oscar had to stand up on a step because he's so short. But uh, I haven't had that problem since I was about 13. But uh, anyway, it's good to be back. It's good to, good to be here, and uh, just good to be with you all again. And uh, it, it was a little disappointing to understand that the largest attendance we'd had in several weeks was while I was gone. But, uh, but part of that was because some of you are comfortable now coming back and, and being here. And it's so good to see you three right here in the second row where you belong. And uh, others that have kind of worked out. And my wife's back for the first time in 14, 15 months. So, uh, lots to be grateful for and, and lots to be thankful for. So the messages started arriving about six weeks ago. I was getting both text messages and emails every day asking me to come in and donate blood. And I've been donating blood since I was 18, so that's not a big deal. But I've been, And I've got a collection of t-shirts. My wife makes me throw them away regularly, so I've only got three left. But uh, frequently when I go to give blood, uh, they'll give me a t-shirt. I like this one, count on me, kind of cool. Uh, have you seen the t-shirt that says, my life was saved by a blood donor? I, oh, you gotta, did I forget the kids again? Yeah. They don't want to go. They want to stay with me, right? No. Okay, time out. <laughs> Who said that? Hannah. Hannah. Okay. Y'all, kids all come here. Thanks, Clancy. I don't That's the last thing on my radar when I stand there for that last song. The Lord's reminded me the last couple of times to get the kids up here. Max, you going to come with us and go? Or are you going to stay with Grandma and Grandpa? What are you going to do? All right. uh, you know, he's welcome to stay here with me. I'm happy to have all the company that I can get. You know. but, uh, let's pray for our kids. Can we do that this morning? Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity, for just the privilege of each of these children being with us. Thank you for parents and grandparents that faithfully bring them. And thank you for those who this morning will be teaching and instructing them. And so we pray your blessing upon each one of them. We pray your blessing upon those who teach. We pray that you will bless your word as it goes forth and give them joy and excitement as they study your word together. So we want to just commit them into your care this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys are out of here. Especially Hannah. <laughs> so where was I when I got interrupted? T-shirts! Yeah, I thought Clancy was raising her hand and telling about her t-shirt. I didn't know where that was going to go. The kids, the kids, okay, got it. Oh. So I'm used to getting t-shirts uh, periodically, not every time that I give blood. But the messages that kept coming over six weeks started promising cash. Huh. Yeah, that's what I thought, Tom. Huh. 
And uh, so if I would come in and donate blood, I would not only get this cool t-shirt that I really, really like, but I would get a gift card for 10 bucks. How many of you would donate blood for 10 bucks? <laughs> if those who raised their hands are probably already giving blood without 10 bucks. Starbucks card? Starbucks card. I did get a Starbucks card once. Sadly, I've been carrying it in my wallet for about three years. If, you, if someone needs a $10 Starbucks card, let me know. Um, if you're one of those addicts that needs that. Um, by the way, I have a YouTube clip to show you, Dave, on Starbucks. You'll love it. So they started, the messages started promising cash. If I would come in and give blood, 10 bucks. And then they said, if you would donate two units of red blood cells, we'd give you 20 bucks. <laughs> Cash for blood. And I was sharing this with my uh, next door neighbor who's a handyman and he's helped me with some projects around the house this last week. And uh, he said, well, shouldn't people just give blood out of the goodness of their heart? Shouldn't they just give blood because there's a need? Shouldn't, you know, wouldn't, why don't people just give blood because there's a need? And, and this conversation with Charlie reminded me of a question that I heard posed to a group of Christians several years ago. And the question was this. Would you be more faithful, more diligent, more active in sharing your faith if every time you shared the gospel with someone I gave you a thousand dollars would you be more faithful more active in sharing your faith if every time you did you got a thousand dollars and if you find yourself saying wow Shouldn't we be actively bringing people to Jesus in our response to Him in gratitude and thanks for what He's done for us? Shouldn't we be sharing our faith with others because He's asked us to do that? Shouldn't we be more faithful, more active, more diligent in bringing people to Jesus? Because that's their greatest need. The most important thing that you and I can do for any other person on this planet is to bring them to Jesus for forgiveness of sin. There ought to be an amen somewhere on that. The most important thing that you and I can do for any person on this planet is to bring them to Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. There it is, finally. Okay, good deal. So this morning, as we continue in Mark's Gospel, we're finally jumping into chapter 2. Are you thrilled? It's the month of May, five months, we're now in chapter 2. And uh, someone said, so you're going to stay around long enough to get us all the way through chapter 16, right? Maybe, I don't know. But as you come to chapter 2 this morning, one of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus is this story of four guys who bring their friend to Jesus. And so I want you to open your Bible with me this morning and let us look at this passage and discover together what it means to bring someone to Jesus. And so I'm in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug up the opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Is that an amazing story or what? It really, really is. But to understand this story, I need to give you some context. Because it's easy to listen to this passage, and what you conceive in your mind's eye is not what took place. And so I have three pictures that I want to show you this morning that will kind of give you some context of what happens, and then we'll take a look at this story. So the first picture I have for you is a picture of modern-day Israel. This is Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And here on the right-hand side of my picture, the red arrow shows the ruins of the synagogue that existed at the time of Jesus. And if you remember back in chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples were in the synagogue Jesus was teaching with authority and people were amazed. And then he cast a demon out of a guy in the synagogue and people were amazed. And when Jesus and his disciples left the synagogue, where'd they go? Peter's mother-in-law. And her house, we believe archaeologically, is under... They build churches over everything over there. Um, That under that second red arrow is the location of the home that Jesus would have come to in Capernaum. This is the location. And the typical home in first century Israel would have looked a little bit like the second slide that David's going to put up for me. The home typically would have been a a, a one-story, one-room home. Typically it would have a courtyard, but then it would have a wall around it, kind of like this. This would be your typical first century home. And you'll notice up on the roof, if you have really good eyesight over here on the right-hand side, there's like a little shade area. And it would be very common for these homes to have some kind of a ladder at the back, kind of a pole ladder. Maybe they would take time to build a stair- stairway. But they would have, give them access up to the roof. And under that shade then, they would find shade and being elevated, they would be subject then to the breezes that are blowing. This would have been kind of typically what a home would have looked like in the first century. A lot different from yours than mine. And the roof of this home, and the third slide that David's going to put up for me, from underneath would have looked a little bit like this. Your typical first century home, the roof, was constructed out of uh, tree branches, typically wood that would have been cut in some fashion, put across, and then on top of that wood structure 
would have been maybe palm branches, maybe uh, grass, maybe leaves mixed with mud. And so all of that mixture together would form that roof. And that mixture would have been a foot, sometimes as much as two feet thick. Dried, hard mud. So that's what these guys faced when they came and brought their friend to Jesus. This kind of a structure, this kind of a road. Now for those of you that are Bible students, there's a little, little extra thought here for you for your study. But if you read Dr. Luke's account in Luke chapter 5 of this, he refers to the roof being made out of tile. And he talks about tiles being removed. That's not the kind of roof they would have had in first century Israel. And so people read Luke's account and think Luke made a really, really bad mistake. Dr. Luke was Greek, not Jewish. Dr. Luke was writing to a Greek, not a Jew. And so Dr. Luke, in the Greek culture, knew that his audience, the guy he was writing for, Theophilus, that in his Greek culture, guess what kind of roofing the Greek culture would have had? Tiles. And so Dr. Luke expresses this story to give understanding to his Greek audience of what would have happened in their culture, in their context with the roof. Fascinating. Bible's always accurate, without fail. And so I want you to think this morning, there's three big, three big ideas I want you to kind of wrap your heads and hearts around this morning. As you think about the task that these four men had in bringing their friend to Jesus. Notice also it says, they came, four men carrying the pallet. I think there were several that were a part of this this organized group to bring this man to Jesus. And so the first thing that impresses me in this passage is this. And this becomes critical for you and me in the 21st century in terms of bringing people to Jesus. Is it necessary for me to believe that people desperately need to come to Jesus? I need to believe, if I'm going to bring someone to Jesus, I need to believe that they need to come to Jesus, right? They have a desperate need. Now, this paralytic didn't have a terminal illness. We don't know if he was paralyzed from birth or paralyzed later in life from some accident. I have all kinds of questions about this passage. I'm looking forward to asking in heaven. Lots of questions. But regardless, this man is paralyzed is totally incapable of getting himself to Jesus, right? Totally incapable of getting himself to Jesus. This paralytic also, because of his paralyzed condition in that culture, would have been regarded as kind of an outcast. Very much of an outcast. Because in that culture, if you were blind or lame or crippled in any way, guess what? You were responsible for that. You're a sinner. The, 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 the disease or the, the malady that you have is a consequence of sin. 
And so people would distance themselves from people like this paralytic. And it puzzles me that this guy has a friend, let alone four, let alone it seems like a group of others that have come along. And again, I got questions. So whose idea was it to take this paralytic to Jesus? Was it the paralytic's idea? Don't know. And in my mind, I imagine a conversation among these four friends. Somebody had to have the idea. One guy, right? Committees don't come up with this. <laughs> One guy must have had the idea. You know, we, we need to get our friend to Jesus. They're hearing the stories about Jesus' miracles and Jesus' healing. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. And how he was able to persuade others to come along. Again, this guy's an outcast. Not an accepted part of the community. He would not have been welcome in that synagogue that I showed you. He would not have been welcome. And at least one of these guys, several of these guys, believed that their friend needed to get to Jesus. I wonder why we don't feel more of that today in the 21st century about people in our lives that we know, our family, our friends, our co-workers. Why don't we understand better that people have the sin virus, right? You know, coronavirus is one thing, but the sin virus has consequences that are eternal. And why don't we fully grasp that? that people need to get to Jesus. They have a desperate need to get to Jesus. Desperate need. These guys brought their friend to Jesus because he had a need for healing. It's always intrigued me that they brought him for healing, but Jesus' first response was what? Son, your sins are forgiven. Many healed him. Every single person on the planet is born with the sin virus. Every single person on the planet is at distance from God, separated from God, enemy of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, unable on our own to make our way to Jesus, right? And these four guys, this, this group of friends, they understood this and they brought their friend to Jesus. I love this story. Because not only did they bring their friend to Jesus, not only did they understand what you and I need to understand, that people need to be brought to Jesus. They were willing to overcome whatever obstacle, whatever barrier was in the way. Whatever it took, they were going to get their friend to Jesus. Do you see that in this story? Whatever it took. And so you can imagine these four guys bringing the stretcher, crowd of others alongside of them, coming to the home, and it's totally surrounded by people. Probably, maybe, even, I never thought of this until this last week when I was meditating on this. Probably, even, there might have been people already up on the roof. I mean, this place was surrounded with people. 
And they're bringing a stretcher. How are they going to get their friend to Jesus? And I found myself thinking about barriers that they encountered. Obviously, there's that physical barrier of all this crowd of people. I suspect there was probably some psychological barriers they had to overcome. A little bit of embarrassment of you know bringing this guy that's an outcast, and you know what will other people think of me? Um, there might have been a little fear of kind of you know how do we get into this group, and are people going to be offended? And we're, you know, there were barriers to them getting there. You and I face barriers in bringing people to Jesus, don't we? We have some of those emotional things of fear of what other people think. Concerned about maybe somebody being offended. Uh, we, we, have, we have those kinds of things. And, and then you, you add to that the spiritual barrier to the fact that we have an enemy. He's blinded the minds of those that don't believe. He masquerades as an angel of light, deceiving people. We, we have barriers to overcome. These guys were willing to do whatever it took to get to Jesus. Whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. And I, I just would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to have been there with these guys and go, okay, so we've got all this crowd of people around the house. There's no way to get to Jesus. I guess we just have to go home and try another day, right? <laughs> just drop in. You know, they, they, they were hindered by that. Maybe if we could get up, I could just see one of the guys saying, maybe if we could get up on the roof. And in my mind, I'm thinking, so you've got this guy on a, a pallet, a stretcher. You've got four guys carrying him. And you're going to carry this thing upstairs or up a pole ladder. How are you going to do that? And oh, by the way, when you get up on the roof, then what? Can you see this kind of developing? And so... They get up on the roof. And I found myself thinking, well, maybe they could just you know, drop him over the roof into the courtyard. Why couldn't they do that? People everywhere. There's no spot. There's no spot in space. And I'm thinking, so I wonder, Jesus was teaching this multitude, this crowd who had come to him for healing. Where would have been the ideal spot? For Jesus to be standing so that everybody could hear him. So I, I would think for me that if I were addressing a crowd inside the house, a crowd outside the house, as well as a crowd maybe even around the, that outside doorway, if I was just kind of inside the doorway of the house where people could hear me inside, my voice would project out the doorway into the courtyard. So I see Jesus inside the house just a little bit. That's kind of how I see it. And so these guys are on the roof. How do you get through a foot to two feet of sun-dried, sun-hardened clay thatch? 
So now Ed would show up with all his tools, big sawzall, jackhammer, and, and, you know, demo saw, and you'd have that hole broken open in, you know, five, ten minutes max, right? They did not have that kind of equipment. And I have no idea. How in the world would those guys have dug a hole big enough in that roof to drop a guy down on a stretcher? Now, if they dropped him vertically, you need a smaller hole. But if they dropped him this way, how big of a hole do they need? Two by six? If he's your size or my size, three by six, right? Or three by seven. And so somehow, again, overcoming every hindrance, every barrier, everything in the way, including a foot to two feet of sun-dried hardened clay. Somehow, they broke through all of that and got their friend to Jesus. On a scale of one to ten, how determined were they to get their buddy into the presence of Jesus? Twelve. You know, they're committed. And I, I just read this story, and like I said, I got lots of questions. How, how did they dig that hole? I have no idea. Could they, you know, I don't know, did they have shovels back then? I mean, did they have rocks with their hand? I don't know. But whatever it took, they wanted to get their friend to Jesus. So what is it? What is it that's the barrier breaker in this story? What is it that allows these guys to bring their friend and to overcome all these barriers? What is it? Faith. Very good. I thought I was going to have to squeeze that out of y'all. Ooh, I say y'all. That's what happens after two weeks in North Carolina. You say y'all. There's worse things in life than saying y'all, I guess. So faith is the barrier breaker. Their trust in Jesus, their trust in God, their, their faith helped them overcome all these barriers. They had what I think of as, as, as a resourceful faith. They met these obstacles, people, roof, all this stuff, but they were resourceful. Let's get up on the roof. Let's cut a hole. I don't think that would have occurred to me in a hundred years, apart from the prompting of God's Spirit, right? They were resourceful. You know, I, I think today of, of how resourceful people have become um, in sharing their faith. Um, and you might think of other illustrations, but uh, we need to be resourceful in sharing our faith. And as I thought about this this week, I thought, you know, In-N-Out Hamburger has been printing on their cups and french fry trays for how many decades? John 3.16, Nahum 1.7, Proverbs 3.5 and 6. Four decades. Four decades. Almost, I think they opened their first stores in what year, Roger? 48? Yeah. Roger was at the first day, so he's my authority on in and out. Um, so all the way back, you know, seventy plus years, and they've been putting scripture group. And I, I often wonder when I see those. I know what those references are. I have all those verses memorized, you know. But what does the average person think when they see that? I don't know. 
But that's resourceful. It's a way of sharing the message. You see that guy on TV with the, the rainbow-colored hair in the end zone at the football game, and he's got a sign, and it doesn't say, Go Rams. It says what? John 3.16. Does that touch people? I don't know. God can use anything, can he? I mean, he used a donkey in the Old Testament. People are resourceful. But we need to be resourceful in overcoming barriers. And whether we're sharing with people on the river, whether our good news club at the schools, or our ministry in Boyle Heights, or efforts just here in the community, we need to be resourceful. I've started talking about, like, well, what can we do on the 4th of July this year? Can we do our 4th of July display and a barbecue? Can we do a direct mailer to our neighbors, invite people to come? What can we do to be more resourceful and more creative? These guys were resourceful and they were creative. These guys put their faith to work. They not only had a resourceful faith, they had a working faith. They didn't approach their friend and say, you know, we need to form a committee to discuss possible ways of getting our friends to Jesus. The thing today is a focus group, right? Whatever that is. Um, what did they do? They did it. We're going to get our, our friends to Jesus. They had a working faith. <coughs> and it's one thing for us to sit here on a Sunday morning, for us to talk about sharing our faith, for us to talk about these things, for us to admire these guys who brought their friend to Jesus. It's another thing for us to put it in motion. Put it into action. I read some time ago the story of a, a blind guy who heard about a doctor. I think this was in South America. And he heard about a, a Christian missionary doctor who had been, had experience in curing people of blindness. I'm not sure what all that was. You know, glaucoma, whatever. But this blind guy, blind guy sought out this missionary doctor because he was blind and had heard that this doctor could help him. He went to this doctor, the doctor examined him, and told him, yes, I can help you, and scheduled surgery, surgery took place, and the guy woke up from surgery, and when the bandages came off, guess what? He could see for the first time. So was he grateful to the doctor for being able to see? Absolutely. So did he sit around and celebrate his eyesight? This guy found a coil of rope somewhere and he went around to all the villages in the area there where he lived with his coil of rope and he gathered up blind people and had them hang onto the rope and he led them on that rope guess where? to the doctor and I think what a, what a great metaphor what a great picture of putting faith into action bringing people to Jesus we need to believe that people need what Jesus has to offer. Yes, Jesus can heal broken marriages. Yes, Jesus can help people with addictions. Yes, Jesus is the answer to all kinds of human issues and maladies. But the reason Jesus went to the cross was why? Sin. To deal with the sin virus. And every single man, woman, child on the planet is born with that sin virus. We need to believe that people need Jesus. We need to believe more firmly, more strongly than ever before in this culture, in this climate. 
that people need Jesus. And we need to be willing, like these four guys, whatever the obstacles are, whatever the barriers are, to put our faith into action. Be resourceful. Be creative. Find new and motivating ways to bring people to Jesus. The third thing that strikes me in this passage is these guys brought their friend to Jesus and they trusted the results totally to Jesus. Wasn't their job to heal their friend, right? Their job was to get people to Jesus. That's all they needed to do. It's not my responsibility. It's not my... It's not on me to bring people to a point of faith and trust. Whose job is that? That's the Lord's job, the Holy Spirit's job. Whoever sent the Holy Spirit, right on. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I just need to get people to Jesus. I had a friend ask me recently about... uh, people being led to Jesus. And I said, you know, every single person I've ever talked to, I've led to Jesus. And they were shocked. You have a 100% success record? No, I didn't say that. I said, every person I've ever shared the gospel with, I've led to Jesus. That's the goal, right? Get them to Jesus. Get them to Jesus. And that's what these guys did. All these barriers, all these obstacles. And in my mind, I see them dropping... By the way, if you were cutting a hole through that roof, even with modern tools today, Ed, what would be happening on the underside of that roof? Debris, all kinds of stuff falling down, and Jesus is down there and all this, you know, in my mind I picture Jesus down there and all this debris is falling down. But they lower that guy down to Jesus. And Jesus says what to this man? Son, I love that, by the way. It says, son. Actually, the word in the original language, I might retranslate as child, which implies this might have been a young guy. I don't know. But Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, time out. That's not why I'm here. I came to get healed. Well, okay. But Jesus' first response, son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that why we bring people to Jesus? Yeah, we'd like them to help them with their marriage or help them with their drug problem or whatever the issue is. But we bring people to Jesus. Why? They need forgiveness. They need the gift of eternal life. If any man be in Christ, what was that passage this morning, Beth, that you read? If any man be in Christ, he's what? Brand new person. Brand new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things. Are become new. And it's in that context, as Beck reminded us this morning, that God has reconciled us to God. And when you think of the word reconciliation, any of you still balance your checkbook periodically? Mm-hmm. You know, I got one hand over here, one over there, good. Um, we've recently had issues with our bank checkbook kind of not matching the bank, and I keep telling my wife, just trust the bank and go forward. You know, they've never been wrong in 50 years, at least in my experience. But when you reconcile your bank account, you're bringing the number you have in your checkbook into agreement with what the bank says you have, right? 
So your bank says you have, you know, $57.36 in your checking account, and we're in agreement. We've reconciled. We're in harmony. That's what reconciliation is all about. And so, when Jesus reconciled us to God, we were brought into agreement, into harmony with God. That's what God wants. God wants relationship, right? He wants relationship with, with you and me. He wants relationship with our relatives, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. That, that's what God's after. Reconciliation, harmony, togetherness, relationship. What is it that hinders that? Sin. The sin virus. And that's why it's critical that people come to Jesus to be forgiven of their sin. And so they bring their friend to Jesus. And the results are all up to him. And don't you love the fact that not only were his sins forgiven, but he healed them. Take up your pallet and walk. <laughs> I wonder if his friends were surprised by that. That's, that's what they were hoping for, right? I wonder if the man on the pallet was surprised by that. We see three responses in this passage to what Jesus did. Three responses. The paralyzed guy, his response to what Jesus did was what? He grabbed that pallet and walked out of there. Did you just see him walking through the crowd? <laughs> you see the, I see the crowds going like this. Like the Red Sea. And I, I wonder sometimes, was it his faith? His friend's faith? All their faith? Whatever it was, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your power and walk. That was the first response. The second response was the response of the crowd. The response of the multitude. What was their response? They were amazed. Not only were they amazed, but what else did they do? The text says what? Glorified God. Is that a good response? Yes. Yeah, that's a good response. Is that the best response? Is that what God, the response God's after? Not quite. When Jesus was in the, the synagogue in chapter 1, when I referred to that earlier, they were, how did they respond to his teaching? They were amazed. How did they respond to the fact that he cast out the demon? They were amazed. Jesus isn't looking for amazement and wonder. He's looking for what? Faith. Trust. So here's the paralyzed guy. He responds. Faith. Here's the crowd. They respond. Amazement and wonder. And then that leaves the scribes. The religious leaders of the day. The spiritual authorities. The one who knew their Old Testament word for word. What was their response? This guy blasphemes. Criticism. We need to do away with this dude. <laughs> we get the same responses today. Some people, when they get to Jesus, they respond in faith and trust and obedience, repentance and faith. Some people, when they get to Jesus, they respond with wonder, amazement, 
Lots of people like Jesus. Lots of people would even say they love Jesus. But they don't trust Him. They don't put their faith in Him. They're not trusting Him for forgiveness of sin, for eternal life. They're impressed. They're fans. They're fans of Jesus. Is that a good thing? That's eh, okay. Jesus isn't looking for fans. What's He looking for? Thank you. Followers. Jesus is looking for followers. Not fans. Not fans. And it's not like Facebook where people choose to follow and unfollow because you said something they don't like, right? Jesus is looking for committed followers. And so I read this story and I reflect on, and there's so much more here. Just, I, I cut this thing in half because there's just so much more here that impresses me. How important is it for you and me to be bringing people to Jesus? Super important. Do you still remember who brought you to Jesus? How many of you were brought to Jesus by a a relative? Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Yeah, a bunch of us. Um, How many of you were brought to Jesus by a friend? Not a relative, but a friend. Yeah. How many of you were brought to Jesus by like a Sunday school teacher, a youth worker, or something like that? Um, Anybody brought to Jesus uh, through the ministry of a pastor somewhere? Um, Anybody come to Jesus because you watched an evangelistic crusade on television or you were there in person? We come to Jesus in a variety of ways, but the most important thing is what? Come to Jesus. That's the most important thing. And as I reflect on this story, I just think, you know, how grateful we ought to be for that person that brought us to Jesus. And I found myself kind of replaying in my mind when I was six years old in Good News Club and, and talking with my mother afterwards and praying with her to invite Jesus into my life. Um, how grateful I am for that moment and that experience. And then I found myself thinking, probably because of a song I was listening to on the radio, I should also be thankful for the person that introduced my, my mother to Jesus. Because if that person had never introduced my mother to Jesus, what? <laughs> Probably not. And you know, there's a chain that goes back, right? There's, there's this, this, this chain of people in my life and in your life that God used over a number of years that you would come to know Jesus. And God forbid that that chain would stop with me and you. People, people need the Lord. I love the song. Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries, only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. 
People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize people need the Lord? We are called to take His light to a world where wrong seems right. More than ever, that's the world you and I live in, right? World where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through His love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life. Only we can share. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. When will we realize that we must give our lives for people need the Lord? And so for us as a, a church body, my prayer continues to be that God would move us out into this community. We're anxious to get back into Boyle Heights with Heights of Grace, right, Beth? Yes. We've got plans to do that. Uh, Beth's done a little recon mission to go see what the situation is there. and uh, We're going to be announcing very soon, I hope, uh, our first venture to kind of go back and see if there's some people we can connect with and bring to Jesus. I'd love to see us doing the same thing on the riverbed right here. Those people need the Lord as well. I'm anxious to see our good news clubs back in action. Not going to happen this school year. How many weeks of school are left? Four, five, maybe? One and a half. Whoa. But God willing, we're praying next fall, right? And we're going to need people that are willing to come along and help. We're going to need people that are willing to help children come to Jesus. And I've been praying that uh, we might put together something on the 4th of July that we can invite our neighbors to. Come and enjoy a free meal and fireworks. People need the Lord. Collectively, we as a church family need to see that. But it also needs to happen individually for each one of us. Grab a rope like the blind guy and find people to bring to Jesus. Lord, convince us afresh this morning that people do indeed need the Lord. Convince us afresh this morning that we need a deeper, stronger commitment to bring you people to Jesus. Deepen our willingness to overcome whatever barriers, whatever hindrances there are. And give us the faith to bring people to you and to trust you with the results. Lord, we come this morning as forgiven people, grateful for the gift of forgiveness. You have healed us from the sin virus. You have brought us into your family, adopted us as your children. Now we're grateful. Help us to respond out of gratitude this morning. Not because there's cash on the table being offered, but because you loved us, you died for us, you brought us into harmony, you reconciled us to the Father. May we be faithful, diligent, because of our love for you. You have called us ambassadors of reconciliation. You've entrusted to us the ministry of bringing people into harmony with you. Kindle afresh 
that flame within our spirits. Kindle afresh that heart of compassion for people that need the Lord. Do that in my life. Do that in each of our lives. Is our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Great message in that song. Let me change the metaphor for a moment of being a stretcher bearer. Because God calls us to be stretcher bearers for each other in the body of Christ. And we have the privilege of bringing one another to the Lord in prayer. And I just wonder as we conclude this morning, if you have a special need for prayer, if you'd like to come and meet me down here with my wife, and our elders will be watching, if there's enough, <laughs> several come, we'll break up and do that. Or maybe just find somebody else and put your hand on their shoulder, give them a hug, and just pray for them. Be a stretcher bearer this morning, here in this place, and then out there. God bless you. Have a great week.